welcome you to Doxodeo Hatfield, a multi-ethnic family on mission, passionate about Jesus, passionate about community, and passionate about serving the city of Chwaneka. Can I ask you to open up a Bible with me to the book of 1 John chapter 4? So that's not John that we have been preaching through. Uh, this is 1 John, a bit later in the New Testament. 1 John 4. So we are in a three-year journey as the Doxidae family, if you're new to us. And we're looking at almost the three elements of what happens when the good news of Jesus takes hold in a city. And we say that when the good news really grabs hold of the people of our city, three things begin to happen we see in the Bible. Faith begins to reach the lost. Love begins to heal the pain, and hope begins to restore that which is broken in our society. And we said as the family over these three years, as the Doxedo family globally, 2022, 23, and 24, we want to look at these three elements of the good news. And so this year, everyone said, man, faith is really challenging, but this is the easy year, love. And we've been saying, no, this is the most difficult year of all, the year of love. And the reason for it is because this love is not defined the way that we would define love, but firstly, it's defined as a love that looks upwards. It's a, it's a love relationship that comes to redefine my identity in God, and then it's a love that looks inward. Jesus says, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, strength, and mind as your neighbor, as yourself. There is a redefining and a healing that needs to happen inwardly long before I can ever love other people authentically. And then it's a love that looks outward. Our expression says this is a love that reaches into the city. It's not just a love for Sunday mornings. It's a Monday to Saturday love. 1 Corinthians 13 says these three things will remain, faith, love, and hope. And so we are saying in this series, these four weeks, the whole Doxedo family globally is looking at the concept of love as we kick off this season, and we'll come back to it a couple of times in this year. But we're saying, man, in this third week, as we try and redefine what love is, can we just say once again that love is probably the most used and least understood word in the world? Can we agree on that just for a moment? That love is the most used and probably least understood term in the world. I think it's fair to say that our world is confused about love. We have flattened out the concept, the word love, so much that it basically means nothing. I can in the same breath say that I love my wife and my children, but I can also in the same breath say that I love pizza. Who would not say that they love pizza or, or European football? Or I can say we love the Kardashians. Everyone, okay, actually no one says that, but we can say... In the same breath that I love my spouse and I love donuts. That is basically the scope of the word. And so it's come to mean basically everything and nothing. And how did that happen? It's because love somewhere in your life has to be defined by something. None of us have a pre-baked idea of love in us. Love has to be defined, molded, almost shaped in us. And I think our culture, you and I are not excluded from that today, even if you're a Christian here this morning, we have been shaped primarily by three things in our culture around love, and that is emotions. We equate it with emotions. Secondly, with media that disciples us, and thirdly, through our past experiences. I think those are the three things that actually teach us what love 
is. Do you agree with that? Let's look at each of those really quickly. Emotions. So we usually think that love is a deep, squishy feeling you feel towards someone. Isn't that true? When you feel really fuzzy on the inside, that is love. Uh, uh, the first ever girl that I dated in primary school, we dated for a, a full four days. That was a powerful moment of my life. So I asked this girl to go out with me at a dance. And then the next morning, she sent me an SMS. That's how old I am. She sent me an SMS to say, I love you. That was powerful. I was already looking at rings. And then four days later, she sends me another SMS to say, actually, I do not love you anymore. I'm sorry. So how many of us feel that's what love is? Emotions that almost last as long as the pizza from last night lasts. It comes and it goes. Love is simply an emotion. But what about media? Can we be honest that most of us are taught, whether we agree or not, what love truly is through media? So what about series? Love Island. Where's Bandile? That's like his favorite show, I'm sure. So all these singles get onto this island and they have some uh, shenanigans. And apparently that's like a whole island of love. Or Love, Death and Robots. Most of the young people watching it. So the sci-fi series on, you know, horror and death and, and romance and, 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 and robots, obviously. And that's apparently how we define love. How about movies? Crazy, stupid love, right? Ryan Gosling, Julianne Moore, Emma Stone. That's where a whole generation of women decided that Ryan Gosling's abs is the definition of love, right? <laughs> or the Brits, love actually, Hugh Grant, right? They taught us that this is actually what love is, and it was really complicated because there's a whole bunch of different versions of it. But I think music is probably the one that most subconsciously ministered to us about love, but it depends on where you come from. Our music tastes are really diverse. So if you're a millennial, older millennial like me, if someone asks you, what is love? You immediately start going like this. What is love? <laughs> Baby, don't hurt me. Yes, I can see Vilna at the back there. No more. Yes, but if you are more of the Disney princess sort, then according to Frozen 2, what? Love is an open door, right? And it's really cheesy. Or if you're older than 55, you belt out with Whitney Houston, and I will always love you, right? And if you're older than 65, not saying anything, then probably all you like a really hipster Gen Z, then Frank Sinatra, L is for the way you look at me, right? Love. If you're under 25 and you've been hurt in love a bit, then you can't not agree with Justin Bieber when he says, listen, so if you like the way you look that much, then baby, you can go and love yourself. Or if you say, man, women run the world, I'm a queen bee for life, then we say, Beyonce says what? Crazy in love. That's my, that's my anthem for love. And then lastly, all of us just at times need a good cry. Isn't it true? Whether you're the most hardened like pirate in the world or you're like a soft-spoken poet, you just need to cry every now and then, like ugly face crying. And where do you go, artist-wise, if you need to cry? <laughs> Adele, right? Isn't that true? And Adele says, I will make you feel my love, right? So, so that's music. But what about past experiences? Our experiences of love, I think, teach us what love is and is not. So a group of researchers, they asked some eight-year-olds, what does love actually mean? Listen to some of their responses. Chrissy, age six, said that love is when you go out and eat and give somebody most of your french fries without asking them any of theirs. That's love, right? Some, some of the wives are like, that is truly love. Danny, age seven, says, love is when my mommy makes coffee for my daddy, and she takes a sip before giving it to him to make sure that the taste is okay. Isn't that beautiful? That's love. And then Mary Ann, age four, actually, she says, love is when your puppy licks your face even after you left him alone all day. 
Isn't that beautiful? That's love, friends. Our experiences, but in a more serious fashion, I think many of us have been colored in by love because people that we had very close to us that told us or those close to us that they love us, they then turned around and they cheated on us or they broke off the engagement just a couple of weeks before walking down the aisle or they abused us, maybe emotionally, maybe even sexually. Or when I needed that person the most, they just disengaged emotionally from our relationship. Or the father who said, I love you, then went and just started a new family with someone else. I think so often our picture of love is colored in by emotions that come and go, by the media that kind of disciples us, but also just our experiences. And here's the thing, if you are a Christian here this morning, this is also a massive challenge for us. If you are especially a younger Christian, you've been recently, you know, started following Jesus. And the reason is because love is probably the most referred to word in Christian faith. It's like one of those pillars of the Christian faith. And what happens is often I realize in church, myself included, we use as Christians, if you're a Christian here today, we use love in much more secular terms than actual biblical terms. The way we speak about and express love very often has very little to do with God's picture of love and very similar looking love to that of the world. But here's the beautiful invitation to us. If we can begin to unlock and grasp and actually practice God's love, it will be the most revolutionary thing to ever happen in your life. If the church could begin broadly in our city to, to grasp and unlock and practice faith, we would see our city so deeply impacted by the gospel. We would never have it be the same. And so this week's shift then is we saying we've been looking at these ways for us to color in what love means. Today we want to say that to move from the place of a self-defined love to a God-defined love. Man, that is where the rubber hits the road. And to do this, we're going to say the way out of confusion about love is this. We look at the very nature, the essence, the, the core of who God is as expressed in His historical actions and His presence. This is where we discover what love is. So this brings us to 1 John 4. This is a letter that John wrote. It's not his gospel according to John, but he wrote most probably to a bunch of how churches in and around Ephesus. And he wrote this letter to them, encouraging them. Commentators believe there was probably some church split that was happening in these communities, and he writes to them about the nature of who God is, and he introduces an idea that was not just revolutionary, it was a scandal to the global religious world at that point. No one had ever dared say something as crazy as this, that God is love. Let's read together. First John 4. Dear friends, let us love one another. Because God, because love is from God, and everyone who loves has been born of God and knows God. The one who does not love does not know God, because God is love. God's love was revealed among us in this way. God sent His one and only Son into the world so that we might live through Him. Love consists in this not that we loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the atoning sacrifice for our sins. Dear friends, if God loved us in this way, yes, we must also love 
one another. I want to skip to verse 19 there. He says, we love because he first loved us. Now, we could literally preach months in just this first couple of chapters of the book of 1 John. But it's so dense. I want us literally just as we read it, just to have it just almost filter through our hearts and the marrow of your soul just this morning. Because it's very obvious that you know, this truth that God is love, it's an incredible complement to all the other things that the New Testament says about the nature of God, that God is spirit, John 4, that God is a consuming fire, Hebrews 12, that God is light, 1 John 1, that God is truth, 1 John 5. But here, John says, man, I cannot think about, if I need to encourage and, and bring back together and, and encourage people toward a faithful walking with God, I cannot think of anything else. More than 30 times, he uses not Justin Bieber love or Beyonce love or love, death, and robots kind of love, but he says this agape kind of love, this is the love that I want us to grasp in who God is. So people will say that if you look at the New Testament, Paul is probably the apostle, the chosen, the saint one of faith. Um, that Peter is the apostle of hope, James is the apostle of good works, but John, he's the apostle of love, right? He's the French apostle. Um, but the thing is, instead of it being this fuzzy, like, you know, John, he just speaks about love. I just want everyone to love one another. Can we just love? The answer is love. No, there's something much deeper here. John says if we want to truly understand love, we need to realize that love is not merely one of the characteristics of God. That God is loving. That'd be great. If there were a God out there, if that God were loving, that would be powerful already. But he says it's deeper than that. It's not that God has a characteristic called love. He goes as far as to say that God's essence, his nature, God is love. And so look at this beautiful logic. He says, if God is love, then those who have been born of God and know God, they are God's children. And God's children have God's nature, and therefore God's children will love. Isn't that simple? It's beautiful. He says, God is love. Those who are known by God are the children of God. The children of God have the nature of God, and therefore God's children will love. This is how John Piper comments on this passage, and he says it so beautifully. He says, love is from God the way that heat is from fire, the way that light is from the sun. Love belongs to God's nature. It's woven into what he is. It's part of what it means to be God. The, the sun gives light because it is light. Fire gives heat because it is heat. And so John, his point is that this new birth, becoming a Christian through faith in Jesus, this aspect of the divine nature at that moment becomes part of who you are. When you are born again through faith, God himself is imparted to you. And he dwells in you and he sheds abroad in your heart his love. God is not just loving, God is love. And when I put my faith in Christ and I'm born again into new life, I am born with the nature of God in me. And now I can become, over many decades of life, who I am. I can become, through the, through the Spirit of God, who I am. So if the question we're trying to answer today then is, if God is the one who defines love, then what does that look like? 
What does that love of God look like? Not a self-defined love. I love Beyonce, but if God, more powerfully than what kids or culture or even my own heart or, or series or media experiences say about love, what does this God-defined love look like? And without being able to do a whole PhD thesis on what this looks like in every portion of the Bible, if you were to go and look at the scope of the scriptures, you would find three things that represent God's nature of love and his actions consistently of love. Three things. God's love is defined by justice, truth, and grace. Justice, truth, and grace. It's seen in God's justice, in God's truth, and God's grace. This is the love that actually heals the pain of our city. Let's look at this for a second. Love, firstly, the first dimension of love, as God defines it, is justice. His passion to do justice. Now, two things. Justice means putting things right. You and I, when we think about justice, it usually comes down to something more like fairness. I want the world to be fair. And I'm horrible at this. When anything happens in our house, I want it to be someone's fault. It can't just be. It's a fatal flaw in my character that God needs to massage out through His grace and love. I can't just let something be. Shay will tell this story many times. I come home many years ago. We just married. And one of our big like cupboards, the, the door, had just fallen off. And she's like, I can't believe this has happened. My first thing is, why did you do that? Like, how did you let that happen? Nothing let it happen. It just happened. But that's how our hearts are. We want things to be fair. So we look, as an example, at our country, and we say, look, these things, these things are a mess. And it's not my doing, so it's not my responsibility. I didn't cause poverty. I didn't let this municipal program fail. So I'm not going to lift a finger to, to solve it. Things have to be fair. I'm not going to use my own resources to solve something that's not my problem. But then, guess what, friends? If we, if we think like that, if you think like me with the cupboard, then you are not reflecting God's justice. It's much closer to the world's issue of in relationship of love, things have to be fair. But real justice, God-glorifying biblical justice, is about putting everything right, just as it was meant to be, justice. That's what God is doing. The scope of the Bible begins in creation and moves to the new creation. God is putting all things right through his good news. He's restoring all things. As Lord of the Rings would say at the end, and Samwise says, it's almost as if all these sad things are coming untrue. That's what God is doing. He is taking us to the place of all sad things being untrue, just as it was meant to be. True love is justice. It's making things right. But secondly, do you know this, that it always comes at a price. Justice is always costly. We know this. To put things right always costs something. And all of us already know, if you ever had to take responsibility for a person or an issue, the greater the mess, the greater the cost to solve it, to heal it, to redeem that mess. Always costs us something, and therefore what we see in God is so revolutionary. It cost God absolutely everything to step into the brokenness of my life, into the sin and the hopelessness of your life. It cost Him everything. It's always costly. And that's what I love. This, this even, we spoke about compassion last week. Compassion is not having concern for something. It's being moved to action. 
And we said, how often do we see that God's love to, to do justice is not just looking at things from a distance. It's saying, I'm not just going to observe. I'm going to move in action. How often did we say last week, do you see the words moved with compassion connected to Jesus? It's all over the Gospels. This example again, Mark 1.40, it says, when this man with leprosy comes to Jesus and he asks him, if you are willing, will you make me clean? What does it say? Jesus moved with compassion. That's biblical justice. That's love. He stretches out and he heals him. And I often think about these moments with these lepers. This is not some fairy tale story that happened somewhere in the ether. This was history. And there was a man who lived a couple of thousand years ago who, who was so overrun with the skin disease of leprosy, his flesh was, was rotting off of his body. They were literally outcasts because they were kept outside of the, the boundaries of the city walls to not infect others. They had to shout out to people coming on the horizon, unclean, unclean. I mean, these people... They were treated quite literally as the scum of the earth. And Jesus doesn't stand at a distance and say, oh, my brother, I'll pray for you. No, he steps in as costly justice does. And he touches him and he heals him. See, the justice of God, God's kingdom is not infected by my brokenness, by the sin of the world, by the injustness of what's happening in our country. The kingdom of God touches it and changes it and redeems it. That is the love of God. Think about the Durban riots just two years ago when our country, in a sense, was taken hold of by the neck by a whole bunch of, of people in the upper echelon saying, we care more for ourselves than for anyone else. And we'll rally people around this almost hatred of each other for fairness. And some people could maybe have stood back and say, you know what, and therefore I also want what's fair. Those people must fend for themselves. But how beautiful was it to see how many people in our country took up a biblical view of love and said, now, we're not going to have fairness, but justice. Even Dr. Day, we had tons and tons and tons of food as, as the Doxa family in South Africa sent to Durban. We had teams of people going from many of our churches in, in a whole bunch of transport ways to get there, to help, to serve, to get their hands dirty. Friends, that is love. To do justice. So can we say this together? This is love, that when we sacrifice to address the injustice in our world, we see God's compassionate love in action. That is love. But secondly, love is also not just justice, it is truth. The second dimension of God's love is that it's seen in His trustworthy truth. Now, I think many of us would not realize this, but our romantic kind of secular notion of love is defined by the world. I think in that picture, we often feel that tough love is impossible. Tough love in the sense that to confront someone in a loving way about the truth of their life, that cannot happen because love always has to be this kind of squishy, you know, feel good. It has to be the soft kind of thing. But that's not love. If someone sees me going down the toilet of my life and stands idly by, if every person in my life just accepts me for who I am, that's not love. That's passive. God says my love is a love that speaks truth to brokenness. That's not an excuse to be judgmental and harsh and careless with your words, but it's an invitation to bring God into the conversation of people's lives. 
When I have a friend or a spouse or a child or a, a colleague or a family member that, that also believes in who God is, then I cannot stand by and say, listen, I just accept the path that you've taken. No, there are moments where we have to speak truth to where this person is. I've had some really difficult conversations with some of you in the last year or two. And can I tell you, I hate having to do those things, but yet I always walk away when it's God working, when it's not my frustrations or my you know, tiredness or my religiosity that rises up in me, but when it's actually God's love speaking, I always walk away saying, God, you are about to bring healing to this person's life. When, when friends, when in our community groups, we don't just allow each other just to go our own ways, just to make decisions that are destructive to who we are. I don't just look at my friends and say, I know at one stage you had such a passion for Jesus, for your marriage to be Christ-centered, for business to be redemptive, and now you have lost yourself. But hey, I'm just gonna love you. No, that's not love. No, love is speaking God's truth when it needs to. It's like the light of God shining in the dark spaces of our hearts and revealing the heart of Jesus. Do we know that the Holy Spirit has a dream for every single one of us? And I've got the opportunity to partner up with the Holy Spirit in His narrative over our lives. What is the narrative of the Holy Spirit over your marriage? What's the narrative of the Holy Spirit over your sexuality? I can choose to join into that truth because that is love. I think the woman at the well is a beautiful example of this. Jesus meets this woman on the outskirts of the city, and she is once again an outcast. And there's a moment as they're engaging back and forth, they're speaking about water and, you know, water at the well and natural water and living water, and they're kind of confusing each other. And at one point, he asks her this. He says, go call your husband, he told her. And she comes back and she says, I don't have a husband, she answered. And he says, yes, you've, you've said correctly. You don't have a husband. You've had five husbands. And the man that you are living with now is not your husband. And this crazy moment, they've been missing each other in this conversation. And there's this pivotal moment where Jesus, and I'm sure the most loving way possible, says, I recognize the brokenness that hangs over you. And I'm not going to sidestep it. Today, we are going to deal with it. And because of that, there's a moment later when she has been so touched by the love of Jesus, she goes back to her people and she says, come and see the man who told me everything I ever did. And she doesn't say it with her, oh my word, he told me everything I ever did. It's like, I am free because truth has been spoken into my heart. I can have a whole bunch of spiritual yes men in my life, or I can ask God, speak your truth, because that is loving. Loving is not being obnoxious, by the way. It's not being short-tempered. When I'm short-tempered, that's not God's love. But when I can join God in the way that he speaks truth, that is love. So can we say this once again together? This is love, that when we speak the truth in love as Jesus did, we see God's trustworthy love in action. And then lastly, love is not just justice. It's not just truth, but love is grace. I think Paul articulates this so beautiful, this dimension of love when he says in chapter five of Romans, but God proves his love for us. And that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. You see how radical grace is? We often think grace is mercy. We confuse the two. Mercy is when I withhold punishment from you. You have done something that deserves the consequences or the punishment, and I withhold mercifully that from you. But that is not grace. It's simply mercy. Mercy is a good thing, but grace is even more radical than that. 
grace says, not only do I withhold this punishment or this brokenness from you, I lavish you with love. I lavish you with what you simply do not deserve. That's why John 3.16, it's so overused, but when you realize what it's trying to say, it's so powerful. For God loved the world in this way. God just loves everyone. Yes, that is true, but on a deeper level, He loved the world in this way. He gave His one and only Son, so that everyone who believes in Him would not perish, but have eternal life. God did not send His Son into the world to condemn me, because I'm already condemned in my sins and my brokenness, in my arrogance. I'm already condemned. No, He sent Him into the world so that we would be saved through have an illustration. Imagine you're a parent and one evening you wake up and you realize very clearly, you just recognize this noise in the kitchen and you get a, the weapon out of your safe and you go downstairs and you just see this young man, probably 18, 19 years old, and he's trying to get food out of your kitchen. And he just looks distraught. As he sees you with your weapon, he is intimidated and he's almost like he goes down on his knees and he says, I'm sorry, like, please don't hurt me. And he, and he starts just rambling. He's just processing. I've had such a difficult life. I never had a dad, never had good examples. I got caught up in a whole bunch of things and he's, he's trying, he's crying, just rambling through this. And as he's doing that, you just hear this blood curdling scream coming from your wife as she walks down the corridor with your newborn. And you realize that as this young man tried to break into your newborn's basically room through the, the windows there, he realized that this baby is, not, is making noise and he's going to be caught out. And in the panic of this, he takes a pillow and he just puts it onto the, the face of this poor young newborn of yours. And your boy dies. Now, friends, all of us, we would have a couple of choices in this moment. One choice is revenge. I'll take that weapon and I will kill you because you took the life of my son, I will take your life. Very natural response to any of us. A second choice would be just, just justice. And this would be a very hard choice for us to make, to say, listen, I'm going to call the authorities, they're going to take this man away, and he will face what he needs to face, but I'm not going to take it into my own hands. Maybe a third choice could be forgiveness. And that, that, that almost seems impossible. For me to look into this young man's eyes and say, you know what? I forgive you for what you have done. And to say, what well, you know what? I'll, I'll, I'll leave you with the opportunity to face the consequences of your actions. But the fourth choice, if we say forgiveness is impossible, the fourth choice is basically unthinkable. The, th the fourth choice is grace. And that's why this father with tears in his eyes, looks at this young man and he says, you know what, I no longer have a son. So now I'm inviting you to come and live in this house and be my son. You who've never had a father, what once used to be my sons, his inheritance, his room, his joy, our love, our covering, now all of that will be yours. And I will teach you how to be a son. You see, friends, grace is so scandalous. There's a story of C.S. Lewis once. He says in a religious department at Harvard, a bunch of people are arguing about what makes different religions unique. And, and they're wrestling with this, you know, this is Buddhism and, and this is, you know, whatever it is. And they're going back and forth. And at one stage, they're getting to Christianity and, they, and they're saying, maybe it's this aspect of, of the love of God and, and maybe, it's, maybe it's truth and maybe it's the incarnation. And as he walks by, he just listens to this and he stops and he says, you know what? It's so simple. It's this thing. 
grace. And the conversation just dies down because they realize the thing that makes Christianity not just true but scandalous is that God at great cost to himself with tears in his eyes looks at the muck and the brokenness of my life and he doesn't simply mercifully say I will sidestep the brokenness but he says I will at greatest cost to myself I will make you my own I will teach you what it means to be a son this is love when we show grace to the world around us we see God's accepting Love in action. So just in closing, 25th of June, 1967, more than 400 million people, can you imagine that? From 26 countries, they watch the Beatles perform very famously, All You Need Is Love. And the, the way they got to the song actually was that they had gotten a brief to say, can they write a song that would resonate most deeply with most people in most cultures? And I think they did a flippin' good job, actually. All you need is love. I think they got so close to the truth. So close. Because, yes, in a sense, all you need is love, but not love, death, and robots defined love necessarily. Not just Beyonce defined love. Not just you can go and love yourself, love, emotional love. Yes, I love you. Four days later, actually, I don't love you. Not the kind of love of the Father who walked out on me. Yes, all the world needs is love, but what the world needs is to see that love in its most pure form, in the person of Jesus. What the world needs is not just the concept of love, but the person of love. And John is saying that when that person infiltrates your heart and your life so deeply that he comes to wash away all brokenness and sin and death and disappointment, and trauma, and hopelessness, and religiosity, and pride. He says it's like you are born again in the very nature of this God. It's like you are born again in the image of the person who is love. And therefore now, let us go and do the same. Amen? Let's pray. Jesus, I pray that, that you would come and so deeply invite us to a paradigm shift of love. A love that is not cheap, not flattened out, not weightless, God. Not a, not a love defined by my past, but a love defined by your justice, God. A love defined, God, by your truth and your grace. God, will you teach us how to be who we have been made to be, to become who we are, to be your people of life as you define it. In Jesus' name.